Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. Before we start the show, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, I know you've seen our set decoration that we've done here. This is very impressive. Wheezy, for as long as she's been conscious, has collected really cool lunch boxes. And later on in the show, we're going to get you to give us a tour, a tour of, of some boxes. of your faves. Some of them smell a little bit like sour milk. Is that <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right. All right. You know, on Media Path... We're like your personal shoppers for media. We browse the web, bookstores, broadcasting cable networks, and streaming services to find content that might pique your interest while not wasting your time. Mm. We also have amazing, and in this case, hilarious guests. Today, we're going to talk to comedian, author, playwright, and now talk show host, Steve Bluestein. Steve and I go way back in the stand-up world, and he was around at the very beginning of the Los Angeles comedy wave in the 70s and 80s, and there's lots of people and lots of stories about that era. And he's a playwright and an author and an actor and a TV show writer and a producer, and he's going to be with us in just a minute. Weezy, what do you have this week? I'm excited about that. Okay. So this week, um, I watched Blue Miracle on Netflix. I think it's new to Netflix. It's by director Carlos Aguilar. It's starring Jimmy Gonzalez, Dennis Quaid, and Anthony Gonzalez. To save their cash-strapped orphanage, a guardian and his kids partner with a washed-up boat captain for a chance to win a big fishing contest cash prize. Jimmy Gonzalez plays a once-orphaned street kid who is healing his own heart through the love he pours into the kids at the orphanage he now runs in Cabo San Lucas. Here's where the formula kicks in hard. Omar needs money to keep the place open. They all enter a fishing tournament with Dennis Quaid as the grizzled, angry former champ saddled with the ragtag band of misfits. (laughs) Everyone pulls together, finding their strength in a shared effort. You've seen this movie before when it was called Bad News Bears, The Mighty Ducks, (laughs) Little Giants, Cool Runnings, Hoosiers, The Sandlot. Fill in the blank. Uh, (laughs) But this time, the water and sky are very blue. The people in this Mexican town occasionally even speak Spanish. There's a dose of religious symbolism with a co-starring role for a nail. And Dennis Quaid is especially grizzled. And I just kind of liked it. (laughs) That was the best review I ever heard. (laughs) What have you been watching? Well... Uh, this is a revisitation. Oh, yeah. Because I know you talked about Mayor of Easttown, but I hadn't seen it yet. And, no. I, and I didn't realize how personally connected to me. The, and, the and also when is. I reviewed it, because the way that uh, that HBO rolls things out, it's with it dribbles and drabs. And, you know, they don't just land the whole season. They do a couple at a time. No, so there's more to discuss. Two days after it's been on HBO, they do roll the whole thing out on Prime, which I did. And I binged it over a couple of days. Well, now that it's all finished, they roll the whole thing out. But yeah, yeah. back okay. when I talked about it, I had only seen two episodes. So we have much to discuss. Right. All right. Well, my first selection, Mayor of Easttown, originally on HBO, now streaming on Prime. Mayor as an M-A-R-E, as in her name, Mayor Sheehan. She's a detective in Easttown Township, Pennsylvania. This is an actual town west of Philadelphia in Delaware County. More on that in a second. This show, I, I, I always have to compare stuff as a way of describing it. It's kind of a darker, grittier Bosh. She's a detective whose life is a shit show. All sorts of ongoing family issues, but somehow she stays devoted to crime solving and justice. Some of the crimes she investigates involve her own family members by marriage, so there's lots of emotional jeopardy, chock full of breathtaking twists and turns, loaded with all the frustrations of blue collar America that we're all experiencing right now. Great realism and writing. 
beautiful photography, just enough cool forensics to keep crime fans glued, an amazing cast, including Kate Winslet as mayor. Guy Pierce is a college professor, writer, and kind of a suitor for mayor. Jean Smart as mayor's mother in a really wonderful role. The smiles and laughs in this show, when they do come, rarely she is usually on screen. Julianne Nicholson, who I became a huge fan of after her turn in August Osage County, and a really nice discovery, Wheezy, Sosie Bacon, who is the daughter of Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon. She's a really gifted actor, oh, a chip off the old family block. Yeah. There are seven episodes. There's a big discussion because of the popularity of the series about whether they'll have a season two. They're still talking about it. They haven't decided yet. Here's why. I love this show. Mm. The series was shot mainly on location in the actual Easttown Township in Pennsylvania, which is two miles from where I grew up. Really? I grew up in a town called Wayne, Pennsylvania. I actually went to high school for one year at Conestoga High School, which is in Easttown Township. All the names they used in the dialogue are genuine city names. They talk about Valley Forge. That's where I used to sled as a kid. They talk about Brandywine Park, where a hideous crime takes place. It's a beautiful place. The miracle is they were religious about duplicating the odd Southeastern Pennsylvania dialect. Now, the creator and writer, Brad Inglesby, was from a town called Berwyn, which was right next to the town I grew up in. He went to Villanova University, which is right down the street. It's a really odd accent. And you can hear it with me if I'm tired or angry. <laughs> uh, water is water and don't. And where you going? When I get tired, it really, it rears its ugly head. But Kate Winslet and a young woman that plays her daughter are British, and they nail this dialect, as do the other characters. After the last of episode seven, there's a little mini doc about the making of this series, including the cast discussing the weird accent. Really fun being a native of that area. Oh, that's really cool, Fritz. I didn't realize how how closely you had grown up uh, to that town. There's that it's an interesting town, and it's a lot like a lot of towns, I guess, where everyone is either related or sleeping with each other or both. <laughs> Seriously, or it could be a you know combination I, I'll, I'll of the two. I'll tell you, you need to wait until the crimes start to occur before you write it off because the first 15 minutes are going, this is just a hugely dysfunctional family and I can't sit through this. But then after they sort of get in there and some of these crimes occur, then it gets really interesting. And everyone's kind of working on something. And I really, I, I admire that in, in, in humans. When, when they're digging in and they're working on trying to do better, you know, know better, do better and address. I mean, there's some scenes in therapy offices. There's there's people that are struggling with some stuff and they're trying to make progress for the sake of kids and for the sake of themselves. Great realism. As, that's the reason I mentioned it's sort of the blue collar America that we're all experiencing right now. People just trying to make it a great show. And this thing is hugely popular. People are uh, that's, that's why they're sort of negotiating to bring back a season two. They hadn't planned on it. Kate Winslet wants to do it, but uh, it, they're getting a lot of eyeballs on this show. The thing that you learn, though, is that murder can really disrupt the therapeutic process. That's very true. So it sets you back a few steps, but it's really a great, it's such good acting. Yeah. It's just such good acting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Fritz, have you watched The Morning Show? 
No, but everybody's telling me about it. But I, I'll tell you a story about that when you're All right. So we started watching the morning show. Well, we had watched one or two episodes, and then we were like, everyone in our family was like, you know, go back, finish it. All right. So this series on Apple Streaming Plus is an inside look at the modern workplace through the lens of the cast and staff of a popular morning show. The show explores vital themes that are deeply woven into male and female dynamics playing out in wherever we may work. But the tensions are magnified when your workplace is televised across America via a high-profile morning Morning show. In the series, Me Too has just exploded at the fictional UBA network as morning show host Steve Carell takes the hit for systemically toxic male behavior throughout the network. His co-host, played by Jennifer Aniston, very publicly places Reese Witherspoon as an unknown young female journalist in his seat. It's fascinating to Google the show and read as conflicted critics grade it poorly while avidly devouring every episode. This could be because it's a delicious, soapy look at the bigger-than-life world of rich New York celebrities while being a slightly inept look at an important multi-layered topic. But I will argue that as over-the-top as it may be, it is asking us to explore complex questions about the intersexual dynamics in our own lives. If you would like to learn more about what launched the Me Too movement in a just as riveting, but yes, this really did happen way, then check out Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow, which is very modernly both a podcast and a book. And it chronicles Ronan's dogged hunt for clues and witnesses in the crimes of Harvey Weinstein while running up against the systems that protect powerful men accused of terrible crimes in Hollywood, Washington, and beyond. And I also recommend... The Chasing Cosby podcast from the L.A. Times. So those are real. That's real life. And if you think that that morning show is kind of over the top, this is really what happened. So here's my morning show story. Okay. First of all, that show was just being completed in its production and its writing when the Matt Lauer issue happened at NBC. And they needed a weatherman. So Issei Morales the uh, really wonderful uh, Latin American actor came over and hung out with me for a few days yeah. on the set of the NBC studio to just sort of get the mechanics of working in a chroma key and how it worked. Could not have been more charming and gave me a, this amazing box of baked goods as a thank you when it was done. Really but he right. said, this is going to be really interesting to see how people react because it's like, you know, today's news, me too, Matt Lauer type material going on in there. I have not seen it yet because, of course... I can't get Apple TV yet, but I will. Well, when Ronan was exploring the Harvey Weinstein landscape and meeting up against resistance at NBC, where he worked, he worked at MSNBC, it was because they were really trying desperately to keep a cap on the whole Washington. Matt exactly. Lauer situation. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. it really is- And the dust from that whole thing is not settled over there no, either. No, it- Great, great, great selection. All right, so here's a documentary uh, uh, streaming on Netflix called The American Meme. This is a doc about social media stars Paris Hilton, Josh Ostrovsky, Brittany Ferlin, and Kirill Bikutsky, and how they hustle to build their online media empires with hundreds of millions of followers and how they face the pitfalls of fame. This film is interesting and very disturbing. At the end, you'll be certain that we have inched closer to the apocalypse. <laughs> Everybody's aware of Paris Hilton's rise to fame. She's pre-Kardashian in this new genre of being famous for no apparent reason. She's an ongoing thread throughout the movie. This whole thing is about what happens when you pour gasoline on narcissism. This obsessive quest for views and likes, how insane money is made by these online influencers. Now, the most fascinating character is this guy, Kirill, 
who was born in Russia. He and his family escaped and came over to the U.S. And he stages events that he records on TikTok and Facebook, the happenings, digital raves, I guess you could call them. You watch praying that your own daughter never ends up in one of his videos. Over and over again, shots of girls getting topless and being gagged with champagne bottles, being bathed in champagne. His whole scene is like Caligula on ecstasy. Where's Fatty Arbuckle with a warning (laughs) shot across the bow? (laughs) Exactly. If you're a parent, these images will haunt your dreams for weeks. What makes this film interesting is that it brings into view what we already wonder about how far down the dark road with social media are we? How close to the abyss are we? It's real it's disturbing and fascinating. The American it is man. because I guess I guess fame or attention is a human instinct. We need to be validated, but it also can be a drug. Like anything that we need, we need air, we need water. I don't think too much air has ever, ever been a problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the things that we need, food, uh, uh, attention, those things can become an addiction. Did you watch it? No, I'm going to watch it based yeah, on yeah, your... you food. should. And I'll tell you, there's sort of a, a, a sweetly sad moment. And that is that Paris Hilton, whoever is doing the interview, asks her why this is all important to her. She says, because all my many fans, and she calls them Hiltonettes or Parisonians or something. Sure. She says... My fans don't judge me. They just love me for who I am. And what she was reflecting on was how badly she was judged when she first got famous and people just put her down. Or for how her parents treated her. Aren't we all just reacting to that at the end of the day? Yeah. So it's So which brings us to Steve Bluestein. (laughs) All right. Because let me introduce this great guest. This man's been a stand-up comic since the 70s. He's worked in Vegas and Tahoe and Reno and Atlantic City. Anywhere there are showrooms being run by guys with shiny suits and lots of vowels in their last name. This guy has worked there. He's written for television, <laughs> including for Norman Lear. I can't wait to talk about that with him. He's produced television shows. He's a wonderful playwright. He won the Chameleon Theater Circle Playwrights Award for his play When One Is Gone. He was a finalist in the Palm Springs Playwrights Festival. He's written three books, Point of Pines. I love this title, Memoir of a Nobody, and Take My Prostate, Please. He's got his own talk show on YouTube called Let Me Say This About That. A very funny man, Steve Bluestein. Hello to the Coachella Valley. Hello. How are you guys? <laughs> Let me just say, I just saw that movie about the fish, the fishing thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah it was it was interesting. It was good. <laughs> and and I own that shirt, Chris. Oh, you do? <laughs> oh wow. I have that shirt. Well, We've bonded so on so many levels already. This is wonderful. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. Good so to see you, my friend. I, I, I read over the weekend, I, I read uh, Point of Pines. And so oh. I have a lot of questions. And But before I get to them, we have found uh, the, the pines on Google Earth. Thomas, if you can click on that. Because you went back and you said a lot has changed and maybe not just uh, so much about change, but also because it's it's coastal and things just change. Right. You know, so a lot of the change had nothing to do with people destroying it. It could have been mother nature or us destroying the planet earth but uh, maybe we could go down the street where you learned how to ride your bike and you could you know point out some highlights great i, I what is I this tory pines or what, what pines are we talking yeah, explain about? where it is point of pines is uh uh just outside of boston 
and it's in Revere, Massachusetts. And it's a neighborhood in Revere. Uh, Revere sort of uh, has, you know, landlocked areas. And then it has this area, which is a point and is surrounded by water on, I guess, three sides. Uh, it's not a peninsula, but it's sort of rounded. And that's where I grew up every summer in, at the Point of Pines. And you would spend uh, all, all summer there or just parts of the summer? Parts of the summer. Whenever we could get away, we were at the Pines because they were the people there were like family to me. Okay, so and, take a look, Stephen. Show us around. All right. Look at that. Look that, at that. Is that I your wish street? I could see it. I oh. wish I could see it. Oh, it's it. Witherby Avenue in Revere, Mass. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see you. It's a beautiful street. You're very on your, sort you're of middle American, beautifully maintained it, houses. It's very middle America. The, New England clappered houses. There's a house there. I can't see what you guys are looking at. Okay. There is a house there that's sort of aluminum siding, brown, a light tan with a parking lot between it and the house next to, next to it. And if you're going down the street, it would be on your right-hand side. Anyways, that's the house that I grew up in. And the way that you described it, it was very much designed for communal experiences and events and bonding and everybody just kind of sitting out and enjoying the summer exactly. together. Exactly. It was two families. Uh, the, the, host, the house was like a, a commune where, you know, everybody had their own home, but they were always together. And outside was, you know, just a, a party, you know, always a party outside. And they, even, they even created this gigantic patio between the two houses where, we, you know, which even, in, so it, it encased another house into this commune. It was amazing. So it explain really what was so different about being there from being in your own nuclear family home. All right. So my family was, if you look under dysfunctional in the, you see, you see my family. Uh, they were divorced. They got divorced. They were violent. My father was violent against my mother. My mother was a bitch. And, um, well, I mean, let's say it like it is. And they were too busy fighting with each other to take care of me. They, you know, they took care of my physical needs, you know, clothes, food, doctors, that was taken care of. But emotionally, I was left on my own. And the Point of Pines was complete, was the antithesis. They were warm, loving people who taught me what a family should be and included me. And because I was an only child, so uh, I took the brunt of everything that was going on in that household. And they, the, they weaponized you. They used you. You know, you were not just collateral damage. You were actually used as a weapon. Right, and exactly. You tell your father this, tell your mother that. And I was right in the middle. And finally, uh, a child psychologist sat me down and said, you tell your parents to fight their own battles and leave you out of it. It was the first time anybody had ever said to me, you have rights. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be part of this. And uh, so the, the, the two families in the Pines, they were an extended family. You know, they, it was cousins and, and, and neighbors and, 
suddenly I was in a group that I wasn't judged because in my own family, all I was was judged. My, my mother's family hated my father's family. My father's family hated my mother. Mm -hmm. I was collateral damage in that because when I was with my father's family, I, even though they were pretending or, or including me, I always felt this uh, distance and I could never let my guard down. That's not what happened to the Point of Pines. The Point of Pines, I let my guard down and I was just a child. Well, you should you know? know, Steve, that Fritz had a similar childhood, not, you know, completely parallel, but, he, you know, you were both kind of only children who were boys, so that you were sort of like the lone carrot in a boiling pot of soup. And, you know, and Fritz can describe what, you know, what he experienced. No, that's true. I, I was just saying that what you said resonated with me. I was an only child, too. My mother's father hated it. Uh, my, my mother's family hated my father's family and vice versa. And when my mother and father no longer got along, uh, which was 25 years before their, you know, he passed away and that was the end of their marriage. But, but, uh, but and I was very similar to my father. He was a great dry wit and I looked like him. And because I was so similar to my father, my mother had this subconscious resentment of me. Yeah. And it was uh, like I was the lightning rod and I was the more vulnerable way for her to take out her anger about my father. It was really an interesting psychological That is exactly what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always, even as a child, had a sense of humor. And I would be making people laugh uh, around the kitchen table, and my mother would say, "A clown! I'm raising a clown." Oh my God. You know, yeah. So I never. <clears throat> and to the to the day she died, she never came to a single show I saw. Not oh. one. Not a single show I did. Not one. She never said. She actually said, when I finished writing memoir of a nobody, she actually said in front of people, "What did you write a book for?" Nobody cares about your life. So something was very wow. threatening about this to her. What does your father do for a living? My father, my father worked for his brother, my uncle, and they worked. Uh, they had a, uh, a stationery store. And to this day, I can't go buy Staples without <laughs> buying something. <laughs> I have enough pens. I have enough pens in my house. We could we could re rewrite the Declaration of Independence one hundred and twenty seven thousand times with the pen. You have a situation very similar to Johnny Carson, which we which uh, uh, some of his comic energy, not all of it, but some of it came from his desire to please and entertain his mom, who was not to be entertained or pleased. And regardless of whatever he did for her, I mean, and I don't know if you read Henry Bushkin's book about him. She, I mean, he gave her an around-the-world cruise, and she never said thank you. He could not make this woman happy, and it was the cause of all of his angst for most of his yeah, life. Yeah, because you don't know how to stop trying Yeah, when it's your mom. Yeah. Exactly. And it took, it took years and years and years. And do you want to hear, this is a true story. I was sitting in a doctor's office in the waiting room with a friend, and I was on one side, and there was a woman stranger on the other side. And my friend and I were talking about my mother and what was going on that week. And there was a lull in the conversation. And the woman reached over and said, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to eavesdrop, but I can't help 
but hear what's going on. He, she said, I just want to tell you that if a mother says there's something wrong with the child, then there's something wrong with the mother. Oh, that's so wow, good. That's perfect. And it hit me like uh, someone took a shovel and hit me in the face with it because that summed it up in a nutshell. And my life turned around at that point from that moment on, because then I realized when my mother would, you know, give me this venom, I, I, I realized it's not me, it's her. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time for a child to get to that point where you're. And those women live forever. (laughs) <laughs> they won't die mine lived to be 96 lived till 94 see <laughs> see what i mean yeah i always said controlling people will choose the time and place of their demise <laughs> that's exactly what my mother did she she said no i'll go when i'm ready well so, you know here's an interesting thing about uh, uh being an only child this it has its good side and its bad side the good side is you could put me in solitary confinement for the rest of my life. I would be perfectly happy. I would play with the bugs. You know, I'd draw on the wall. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm exactly entertain. like that. To this day, I'm still like that. I, I can entertain myself. The, the other side of the coin is I always wanted a brother or a sister, someone to share this grief with. But as an adult, I realized that if I had a brother or a sister, they would probably be as screwed up as I was, and then I would be dealing with that. So I'm very happy to be an only child. No, that's a good, that, that is a good point. No, absolutely. They clearly, both of your parents clearly did not have the ability to comprehend or feel the damage they were inflicting on you. So they were broken as children, and you described to a certain extent your grandparents, but your heart and compassion are fully functional. Was it Point of Pines that nurtured that in you, or are you just wired differently than your folks? You know what? I suffered so as a child that I don't want anybody to have to go through what I went through. So I, I, and I had a lot of therapy, a lot. Mm -hmm. There are entire homes with wings that were built (laughs) in my on my therapy. We call this the Bluestein suite. The, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so I'm very aware of the that perception is not reality. Even though it feels like reality, it's not reality. And I try to make people understand that, that how they feel is not actually what's happening. Mm. It's just a reaction to what's happening. If you and, didn't have humor, you'd be really screwed up, Steve. I'm telling you. Well, you know, I, you know, I struggled. I struggled terribly in the beginning at the comedy store because I came from the May Company. Some, most of these people had been doing comedy for a long time. Like Pat Proft was in Minneapolis, and he was at Dudley Riggs and Bo Capral. They they came schooled. I was, you know, brand new. So uh, and being in so insecure, it was horrible until. You know, the night it changed was uh, John Savage was a friend uh, and he came to the comedy store one night and I had been bombing, 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 bombing. And he came to the comedy store and he watched my act and he said to me, you're really good. He said, you're an actor. He said, do you understand that? And that was the first positive feedback I got. And from that moment on, 
I never bombed again. Wow. I mean, I bombed in front of big audiences, but not the way I was doing. You just needed to be fear. substantiated. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to talk about that phase. You, you mentioned Pat Proft because you were back at the beginning of the comedy store after Mitzi took it over and part of the first comedy store players, which were the first improv group there and Pat Proft. And talk about some of the other famous people that came out of that original group. Well, all right. So I was there even before Mitzi took it over. As a matter of fact, I was, Mitzi asked me to come, Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store, uh, she asked me to go to the meeting in which Sammy agreed to give Mitzi the store. So I was there. That's how early on I was. And uh, in the beginning, let me listen. I'm old now, so names are hard. I'm with you. Hold, hold on. Um, Craig T. Nelson, Barry Levinson, uh, 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 Cliff Wilson, mm. uh, Red Fox. These were people that came in to hang out and just stand on stage at the comedy store. But in the comedy store players, the original four that I saw were Pat Roth, Archie Hahn, Valerie Curtin, and Gary Austin. And the first night I walked into the comedy store, I saw them and I approached Valerie and I said, you know, I've never done this. Are there any classes I can get into? And she said to me, you know, I think Gary is starting a class. So I approached Gary and I said, can I join your class? And he said, sure. And that class became the Groundlings. Oh, wow. I was in the first show the Groundlings ever did with Valerie and Archie, the three of us, and a bunch so of So this others. is before they had their own stage down Melrose Avenue. Oh. They were working at the comedy we, store. We used to drive to Vermont to a little theater called the Hello, a little theater called the Cellar uh, Theater, and uh, that's where we that's where we learned. And Jack Sue, Jack Sue from uh, a Flower Drum Song, and Barney Miller. He was a are we live? Is that person We have uh, seven or eight producers that are just walking by uh, on their own yeah, world okay. here. We can't stop. Uh, yeah, Jack Stu was in this class. And I learned the basics of improv from Gary Austin in this little theater downtown. And, and uh, it was an amazing time. You know, your self-esteem, I mean, you came out of this bad family situation, but your self-esteem must have been fairly hardy because anybody that can do improv... I bow in their direction. To me, that's like nude hang gliding. <laughs> it just seems so hard. And well, you know what? It's I think it was stupidity on my <laughs> part. I, you know, I didn't know it was hard. I just learned how to do it. Well, I think and, if you're clever and if you're talented at it, there's this group energy that kind of lifts yeah, everybody yeah. up. And so I think that was perfect for Steve in that at that time in his life. Yeah. Well, yep. I also learned how to use it in my stand-up. Mm-hmm. You know, I was standing on stage, I think it was at the MGM Grand, and I was opening for like, uh, maybe it was Donna Summer. I don't remember. And it was 3,000 people in the main room and I was doing my act and I stopped and I just looked at the audience and I said, if I have to say these words one more time, <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and I looked down at the woman in the front and I said, what do you do? And, and we started bantering back and forth. And I used all my improvisational skills 
working with this. And that's how I started talking to the audience. And uh, you're a brave performer because I remember one of the last times I saw you do uh, do uh, stand up. It was at Igby's, which was a fantastic room on the west side that closed after the L.A. riots. But you used to go up on stage with a stack of three by five cards and just read your jokes right up to three by five cards. Oh, he's going to get his three by five cards. Steve is. But I always thought that took maximum. Oh my goodness! What have you got? What's fresh? They're a little bigger now. Now they're eight by fives or whatever the hell. (laughs) uh, I'm working. Don Barnhart asked me to come to Vegas to work his club. And I said, Don, no, 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 Don. No, I haven't done stand-up in so long. I can't do it. And he said, yes, you can. He says, I, he says, I don't care if you bomb every night. I just want to see you on stage again. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. And then I went, oh, what have I done? Because <laughs> I, I lost my three-by-five cards <laughs> I lost, so I had no idea what my act was. And so I started writing a whole new act about moving and moving to the desert and all this other stuff. And I started with my three by five cards and I'm going to use them. In oh, so do, you want to try really s- do you want to try something on us? Well, I, when I was selling my house in Los Angeles, I had, uh, I had uh, a real estate broker. The Del Berkowitz with screw you real estate. <laughs> and it says right on the card, if we can't sell your house, screw you. Sadell <laughs> would say, you know, you've got such a special home here. <laughs> so special. I love everything you've done with this house. It's because it's special. Look how special this house is. <laughs> a year later, it hasn't sold. I said, Sadell, what's going on? Just, well, it's so special. Who could live here? <laughs> you wrote so, for Joan Rivers, right? Yes, I so did, did I. I wrote for Joan Rivers for 10 minutes for $10 a joke. I sold Joan right. Rivers jokes. Yeah, everybody All three did. of us. Everyone in town I, I, the, knew The she joke was about blind. Joan Rivers was, and you, you probably, were you a staff writer or were you just like a piecemeal writer? Oh, like, I, no, we had the same manager. Oh. So I was just throw her jokes whenever I Yeah, could. so you would write a joke for Joan Rivers. She was the cheapest person in show business. Oh, yeah. She'd pay you $10 a joke, yep. but then she'd send you a 12-page legal document to sign, and the I paper was worth more than the 10 bucks. Yeah. Well, my two jokes, my, the two jokes that I loved that I wrote for Joan Rivers was, she said, uh, I took Elizabeth Taylor to McDonald's. She got stuck in the arch. <laughs> That's a good and, joke. And then she was doing it. I'm getting older jokes. You know, I'm getting older. And she said, my vagina is so dry, I douche with a dust buster. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I remember selling her, and I could, my memory could be way off on this, was that I was so ugly when I was born, the doctor kept yelling, push, push. And my mother was like, I'm pushing. And she said, I'm talking to the nurse. <laughs> Something like that. You know, yeah. if there were, you know, just like, I'm so ugly. I'm so this. My right. boobs are falling. Like, you know, it was just plug yeah. in punchline. Fun, though. I want yeah. to talk about Boston because you mentioned Point of Pines. How, how far from Boston was that? Uh, you let me just tell you, I was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And to give you an idea how close to Boston it is, Logan Airport's parking lot is in Chelsea, Mass. <gasps> oh, wow. That, well, yeah, I only I, bring it up because so many talented comics have come out of there. 
you know, uh, and out of Emerson College in particular. Leno, I guess, went there, right? Yeah, and, I went there. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, that's why I'm mentioning it. Otherwise, it would be a pointless comment. But uh, Dennis Leary, yeah, uh, Wendy Liebman, I think, went to Emerson, right? And Norman Lear. And Norman Lear went to Emerson. What a what right. a hotbed of talented, funny people. Well, all this comedy stuff started way after I had left Boston. Oh, because I graduated college in '68, and the comedy store opened in '71. And so I was in Los Angeles at that time. And the comedy boom in Boston was a result of what we were doing in Los Angeles because, you know, people don't know this, but every comedy club in the country that you go to, the basic factory is based on what Mitzi's structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every, and, and, you know, Bud Friedman had the first, club there's no two no two ways about it because i went to his club in new york city in 1968 because i wanted to see the ace trucking company ironically i became a part of the ace trucking company many years later but the the improv was mainly a place where the theater kids would go after the theater, after the theaters. Yeah, closed. talk about that. that. That was cool. I mean, the people who were performing on Broadway, after the show went down at night, they'd go in there and do a comedy or a song. They do singing and, and comedy and sketches. And, and it was everything. It was variety. Sammy Shore wanted uh, a place where he could be showcased. The comedy store started so Sammy could be showcased because he was... Uh, 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 Elvis's yeah for twenty years he wrote a great yeah. book about that called Second Banana and it was really wonderful about being how how hard it is to be an opening act right and and so he so that's what happened and what happened was that everybody else got work out of the comedy store <laughs> but Sammy yeah <laughs> and that's why he lost interest so what know? are the elements of a good successful highly functional comedy club that Mitzi put in place that she understood were essential? Focus. Okay. Number one, focus. That means dark room, stage with lights where the hot, you know, where the act is and all the attention is toward the stage. Now you mentioned Igby's. Igby's was a good comedy room, but it had its detriment, which was it had a mirrored ceiling and the lights on stage bounced off that ceiling and wow. lit the audience. I didn't even think about that. That's a great point. And Plus, I, the, the bar was back there, and the blenders would go off just before a punchline. Exactly. And Mitzi moved the bar outside of the mm-hmm. room. She painted the room black, and and she got the and she instituted the light, which, you know, even as a professional. I still look for the light yeah. because mm-hmm. I don't know when to get off unless somebody tells me. Mm-hmm. Right. So the light is you get lit at five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. And she was so married to a black environment that she made it in her house black environment because all the furniture in her house was black as well. But you, you have to see people close together. People laugh better if they're sharing right. the laughter. The ceiling right. needs to be low so yeah. that the that yeah. the sound stays contained. Uh, you have to mandate no talking. 
sometimes I've I've performed in clubs where it's like, well, these people bought steaks so they can talk and put their back to the audience. No, no, because they're I ruining agree. the show for everyone around them. So go ahead, well, Steve. I, I one of the, uh, when I was brand new, I like the second thing ICM sent me out was a, a show in at the Durrell Country at the Durrell Hotel in Miami, and I got on stage and I, you know, I'd been working and you know, silent. Absolute silence. The flop sweat starts, and and I get off the stage, and I I'm I'm completely suicidal. And there was a comic in the audience. I I can't remember his name, but he was one of the old school comics. He comes running after me, running out. Says, hey, hey, kid, what? You're wonderful. I said, wonderful. I just bombed. He said, Are you kidding? They're all eating dinner. You can't fight the fork. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And from that moment on, I will not work in, a, in a, any environment where people are knife and forking it. You know, wow. hand foods are okay right. because they can still look up at you. But if, if you got the knife and the fork, then they're down in their plates and they're not looking at yes, you. Yes, hand uh, food. A, a great venue is uh, the uh, upper room at Vitello's. I don't know if you've ever worked there. Worked it's it. beautifully done. It's a great sound system. Uh, the only drawback is that they serve full-on entrees and it's really disconcerting because you have no sense of how you're doing. Well, doesn't uh, Mike Lacey uh, serve entrees too, though? What's that? And he's got a great room. He Mike. does, but I think he, it, it, Steve will back me up on this. I think he serves his food before the show starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, That's any true. show in Vegas, the, the, the food is served, the dishes are cleared, mm -hmm. and then all the drinks come out at once. If there's a four drink minimum, you get four drinks. They put them down. You pay your bill. Done. Mm -hmm. The comedy, the Ice House, which I love because it has every element of a perfect room. Mm -hmm. Small, low ceiling, hardwood floors, audience packed in tight. Slight incline from the front to the back of the room. Finger Slight food. incline from the front to the back. But at the end, at three quarters of the way into the headliner's at they flood the room with the check. Yeah, oh, God. no, I always hated and, that. And then everybody's looking at the check, and did you have the beef? And where's the tacos? <laughs> and I didn't. And they're not paying attention to you. No, and you're and, going into your big closer at that time of the night. Nobody's paying exact, attention. Just when you should be peaking, because my act was was built. Mm -hmm. Just when you should be peaking, it drops off. Right. And then you have to build up again. Mm -hmm. And I, I just. And so what I started doing was saying to Bob Fisher, who owned the Ice House, I don't want a headline here anymore. I'll middle. Mm. And because George George Miller told me that. He says, I don't headline there anymore. How can you fight that? So George was a middle. I said, well, if George is going to middle, I'll middle. And, and that was always a problem on the first show because they were so worried about turning the audience over. So they brought the checks out like two thirds of the way into the oh, show. Yeah. The second show, you could tell them to hold off until the end. Crazy. I think you guys have the chops to run your own club. Oh, no, I don't. Steve does. Listen, let me just tell you, I, I would rather inject iodine <laughs> in both eyes <laughs> than have to deal with comedians. Thank you. Oh, no. All right, so we want to hear some good c comedy stories, but let's talk about the the generation above you. So when you started going to comedy clubs and hanging out there and making friends and, and peers and stuff, who were the people that you ran into that had preceded you that you looked up to that you have some interesting well, stories? David Brenner. Okay. 
uh, and um, uh, uh, see, this is the old age. I'm talking about this on stage. Freddie Prince? No, Freddie was after me. Freddie was younger. Uh, from um, oh, Dave Kaplan. Steve Landisberg? Uh, Steve Landisberg, right. They, they were all ahead of us. They, you know, uh, the impressionist um, helped me. Um, Fred Travelina? No, Fred oh, was, oh, Rich Little. Fred, Rich Little, and the, but there was a comedian. That, oh, Frank Gorshin? That's it. There Frank you Gorshin. go. Good one, Wheezy. I watched a lot of Mike Douglas. <laughs> they, they, were, they all came in, and Flip Wilson, like I said, Red Fox. But, you know, the truth of the matter is the comedy boom didn't really actually start until Jimmy Walker got his deal with Tandem, okay. which was to, not only was he being paid a salary, but he was given five or six writers who were writing material for him. And he oh. would take that material and try it out at the comedy store at the height of his TV fame with, you know, Dynamite. Yeah, and Tandem. Plus it was Carson moving out here, right? Because uh, then the comic- oh, yeah. Talking about- that's the shift of show business to the West Coast. Right. I'm talking about the comedy boom oh, okay. when people said, let's go to a comedy club. Oh, okay, I got you. That, and Mitzi would would showcase, uh, make sure that Jimmy was on at the nine o'clock at the peak and eleven every week. And he and and she would advertise that he was going to be there. And people came in droves to see Jimmy. And Jimmy brought Richard prior mm-hmm. and then and then all get all hell broke loose mm-hmm. wow and then the crowds were packing you know i remember standing outside of the comedy store and just seeing the smoke pouring out like the building was on fire <laughs> <laughs> you know people smoking but but it, it it didn't run like it runs now where you had lots of lower and mid-level comics first and then the big acts at the end it was all it sounds to me like it was just a place where pre-established guys got a chance to work out well that was how it was in the beginning and then when mitzi took it over she started developing comics you know she found um yakov smirnoff Mm -hmm. and she said steve wait till you see this guy and i i said a russian yeah (laughs) nobody's doing that and she was right he's and he's had an incredible career Mm -hmm. and and uh she was she could find she could find talent she could also kill talent, you know, like she would say to some of the women, you, you ought to work in all yellow, you know, what, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, oh yeah. So, you know, and, I talked about yeah. that with Elaine Boozler, but you might have a better opinion or a more objective opinion because Elaine, who was really classy about the way she answered the questions, wouldn't give it up that Mitzi really made it tough on female comics and relegated them up to the belly room and all that other stuff. What, what, what was it like? But when I um, when I heard about the belly room, there were no female comedians working. There was Robin Tyler and her partner. There was uh, Elaine, but she came later, mm-hmm. and she had been working in New York, and she came to L.A. to be showcased. And there was uh, there were, uh, even Lotus Weinstock. Lotus was later. Oh. This is all. Lotus was developed by Mitzi. Hmm. Um, 
And and I heard that she started, Mitzi said she wanted the women to have their own room because there weren't that many comedians and she was developing a place for them. Now, that being said, it was a horrible room. It was tiny and people were going into the belly room waiting to get into the main yeah, room. It was a holding tank. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a holding tank. So they weren't really a legitimate uh, audience, you know. It, but she did give women a chance. And now, you know, there are just as many women comics as there are men. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you talk about comedians and, and talent and stuff, you have to realize that you're dealing with ego. Mm-hmm. Every comedian who worked the comedy store thinks they should be a headliner. Mm-hmm. So if Mitzi says no, there's the resentment. No. You well, know, were that- you running into a lot of people and, and sharing your, your, your childhood stories or what had motivated you to go into comedy, to standing on a, a stage and saying, you know, please love me? Did you find that people had just natural ability to be funny and a, and, a, and a healthy childhood? Or did you find that people had been overcoming something and had developed their, their sense of humor as a survival mechanism? Well, it's interesting because I was once sitting at a table with a bunch of comedians and I said, who had a happy childhood? And not one of their hands went up. <laughs> okay. Every one of them. Uh, Alan Bursky was in a cast up to his waist through his whole childhood. My parents were divorced. Uh, Someone's father died. Someone's mother died. There was a flood. There was a fight. You know, <laughs> there was some trauma that that got them to that table. And um, I, I always say that there are two kinds of comedians. There's the intrinsically funny person. That's like Howie Mandel and Elaine Boozler. And, and the example I use is... Uh, David Brenner was walking down the street in New York City and a manhole blew 25 feet into the air. And while it was up in the air, David said, heads. <laughs> and, and that's an intrinsically funny person. He sees life and he reacts to it comedically. Then there are people who have learned if they say seven words in a row and stop, the audience will laugh. They're technicians. Mm. Both are funny. I personally enjoy the intrinsically funny people. Absolutely. Better because like Monica Piper and I, we have suddenly become these, this really good friends because she called me up one day and she said, look, I'm doing a one woman show and I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to uh, do it in your living room for you. (laughs) And I said, just give me a minute so I can shove knitting needles in both eyes. <laughs> so she came to my house and she did her one woman show in my living room. And I kept throwing in lines, you know, as she was talking, I'd say, say this. Uh, and when it was done, she said, how was it? I said, it's wonderful. Aww. I was prepared to hate it. It, it, it's wonderful. And it was on and off Broadway for a while, right? It, it, it ran for off Broadway for over a year yeah. and was called not that Jewish. And because <laughs> of that, not that connection, of course I told it to change the title um, <laughs> because, uh, because of that connection, 
we have learned that we have the same sense of humor. Mm. We see things exactly in the same, same viewpoint. And we call each other, nobody makes me laugh. Nobody, you know? And, and so she, she makes me laugh. There are people that just make me laugh. You know, uh, and it's funny that you mentioned that because it seems to me that back during the time when you were starting um, with the comedy store players and starting standard, maybe it was because the business, the, the comedy club business was still in its infancy, that the performers were more supportive of one another. And even the, even the Leno, Letterman, George Miller era, those guys hung out and lived in each other's cars and went to each other's homes yeah. on Thanksgiving. It seems like it was more fraternal. Now it's just like cutthroat. Well, it's interesting because David Brenner said to me, I don't understand this. He said, in New York, we're like a family. We're supporting each other. And out here, it's more cutthroat. And I'll have to say, and Bo will hate me for saying it, but I have to say that it was because of Bo Capral, who was the most competitive human being on the face of the earth, that he set the tone uh, of those years. Uh, he's a wonderful guy, and he's very talented. And But I think back then, he was really a different person. And uh, and it was very competitive, you know? It, it, until Alan Bersky said to me, um, look, it's not a race. We're not here, you know, to, to see who beats who. And that kind of took the pressure off. But it can but, feel like a finite uh, goal that's only available to some. When you saw when you guys watched Jimmy Walker get that show, and then you watched Norman Lear take care of him and hire writers and make sure his stand up was, in the, and then Mitzi puts him in the, you know, the the prime position of, of the lineup. And then it's like, okay, who else is going to book a deal? Who's going to get on Carson? There were like specific things that some people were getting and some people were not getting. So it can seem less collaborative when there's only one person on stage at a time. Well, yeah, and like I said, everyone thinks I should be headline. Right. You know, everyone, about that right. same topic, Steve, uh, I ran into Johnny Dark at a coffee shop. And he was a close friend of Letterman's. And Letterman would, uh, I know, he's holding his tongue. You okay, Steve? No, he's fine. Uh, but but uh, he was a close friend of Letterman's. And Letterman was always really good to his close friends by giving them pops on his show. And, he, and this was when Letterman announced he was going to retire. And I said, so what do you think Letterman will be like without TV after he retires? And he thought about it for a second. And he said, Howard Hughes. <laughs> that, that was so funny. But that, that's not, that wasn't the point of what I wanted to say. He said something, he said something uh, which is a great philosophy. He said the hardest thing about show business is learning to deal with the success of your friends which I thought was brilliant. And that really is. I mean, don't be, don't begrudge them. Everybody supported Leno when he started to make it. And I guess it sounds like the same for Jimmy Walker, but it, it, it takes somebody comfortable in his own skin to be able to do that. And those people aren't comics. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, Elaine is incredibly, Elaine's taken her energy and, and into animal rescue. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And, and her, I mean, the heart of that woman is as big as this room. Oh, yeah. She, you know, she'll crawl on her hands and knees to save a dog someplace in, in Alaska. Yeah. And, you know, 
I wouldn't do that for my cousin. <laughs> but if you, you know, take some of you, you would for some of the cousins, Steve. Um, Maybe Didi. It, Dee Dee. it okay for Didi. It takes someone who can have some sort of passion outside of stand up to find some sort of joy in something that isn't as competitive, I, I think is, is healthy. Right. And for you guys to write books and to have these other outlets for your creativity is, I, I think is really healthy so that it's not always this sort of stage time jockeying for a spotlight. That's a good point. What's your favorite well, kind of writing, Steve? Which kind is most satisfying to you? I, I love writing alone. I loved, I loved writing the books. You know, I wrote sitcom for years and it was, eight guys in a room working on one joke for four hours <laughs> until I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> I remember uh, I was on a show with Mary Willard. We were part and we were a team and they literally, it was nine o'clock in the morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon, they were still working on the same joke. And I said, excuse me for a minute. I went up to my <laughs> office. I wrote 12 jokes. I threw it on the table. I said, pick a joke. Let's get out of here. <laughs> It was a nightmare. So I love writing alone, and I love, I love playwriting because more than film writing, I find because I'm dyslexic, I find film writing to be too big. Mm. You have to be big in film writing. You have to, you have to get on a plane and go to Georgia. You know, <laughs> in, in a in a play, you can do it in one room. Yeah, if you, you know, write a joke, you can imagine the audience laughing at it too when you're writing for something that's going to be performed live, mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Yeah, but it, it's not even that. It's just the building those relationships in small places that's more uh, appealing to me. And I've got eight plays sitting in a drawer right here that, because when I thought, you know, when I was done writing television, I thought, well, I'll write plays. That'll be easy. I'll just write, I'll just write plays. I should have just slammed my hand in this drawer. I mean, While we're talking about your playwriting skills, a sad coincidence is your play Rest in Pieces, another great title, had a New York staged reading with Olympia Dukakis, who has just passed away recently in the last year or so. Yeah, that, that play has had more staged readings and... It had uh, two, two productions, and uh, Olivia Dukakis was in one, and uh, oh, here we go again. Well, if she knew you couldn't remember her name, she'd be mad. No, uh, I, I can't remember. And you know, I'm writing this thing for my act about I can't remember names. I can tell you the color of their hair. I can mm -hmm. tell you what they were wearing. I know I can describe their house. I know their car. And I, you know, I said, you know, that woman, that woman, she had blonde hair and then her husband had an affair and she left him, but then she came back because <laughs> he, he was the only one who would take her craziness. Who was that? You mean mom? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you Google all the elements, it spits out the answer, right? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I just can't remember their name. James Coburn, not James Coburn. And anyways, uh, he's dead too. James Coco. They're all dead. Jimmy Coco. What? No, no, no. They're all funny. dead. They're all. Uh, Lee Marvin. What? You can't no. just keep saying names. For no, uh, well, James Coburn and Lee Marvin were often mistaken. Oh yeah, they are. So, but uh, James Coburn was wrong. <laughs> I want to talk. I I don't know if Fritz has heard you talk about the parties at Fred and Mary's, but I think Fritz would enjoy hearing some of this stuff because he loves showbiz lore. Well, uh, we're talking about Fred Willard and his 
wife, Mary Willard. And they were the universal party givers in Los Angeles. And uh, New Year's, Christmas, Thanksgiving, St. Patrick's Day, Fred's birthday, Mary's birthday, Fourth of July. These were the parties. And I'm not talking about 15 people and cheese dip. I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about a hundred people, hundred and fifty people, and a caterer. And the and Mary was Mary was so special. Um, she would create, she would write plays on the 4th of July that encompassed our history. And she would have all the children play the, you know, play the parts, all the children, <laughs> so that they would learn about American history. Wow. Uh, she was just amazing. And Christmas, every Christmas party was exactly the same every year for 30 years. And it went like this. You'd come, you'd have some hors d'oeuvres, and then you'd mill around outside, and you'd eat, and you'd joke, and then Mary would say, it's showtime. And, and Fred would get up and do something, and then Joanne Worley, who had been at the party the whole night, suddenly disappeared. And then all of a sudden, you'd find her outside tapping on the window. And Fred <laughs> said, oh, look, it's Joanne Worley. And he'd let her in. And she said, Fred, I was checked in the neighborhood and I heard all these people singing. And so I, I thought I'd come in. He said, oh, do come in. She says, I hope you don't mind. I brought a piano player. And, then, and she'd go over and she'd do 15 minutes. <laughs> and she'd sing. And, and, and she, I just adore that woman. And then... Then we'd sing Christmas carols, the highlight being the 12 nights of Christmas. But the big deal was five golden rings. If you had to do something funny on five golden rings. So um, they, uh, Perlo, Bob Perlo and I, we would always come up. So one year, Dave, uh, Bob called me on my cell phone during that I timed it and it rang and I went, hello. And he went, <laughs> and the next year I went into the kitchen. I got their vacuum cleaner and I plugged it in. And when it came time to go five, I came up with the vacuum cleaner on and I started vacuuming. Going, it was, it was like that. It, she was as funny as he was. I was on jury duty with her one time and it really made the week go fast. She was very funny. Oh yeah, she was very, but she was, she had a heart of as big as all outdoors. And when Mary passed away, I, I grieved, I grieved more for M Mary's passing than when my mother died. I really did. Her, there were 250, 300 people at the funeral. It was just, and, and it was, Mary would pick the cream of the comedy world to come to the parties. So, oh, sorry you weren't there, uh, Fred. <laughs> oh, no. I, uh, I was in, Fred, Fred used me in his Christmas show. He would do this Christmas show every year. And a couple of years he did it at the El Portal Theater, which is where I had uh -huh. my one-person show. And he would invite me just to come out and do a couple of Christmas weather jokes and then walk off. And he would sit in this throne and they'd have all these odd characters. They had a great yeah. Donald Trump impersonator for the last couple. I remember that. But no, I, I, he had a long career and was, they were lovely people. They were, they were truly lovely people. And, and, you know, and 
those those parties, I mean, everyone who was important in comedy was there. And Mary kept Fred's name in everybody's on everybody's lips because of those parties. They were they were amazing. They were just amazing. And I wrote about it in Memoir of a Nobody. Yeah, that's why. That's what it, it's. Have you? You have to read that. Book. I, I I want to read it. His book is the. That's the first book I read, and then this weekend I read Point of Pines. And so you know, Steve's one of my favorite authors. But I want to talk about now. You have a YouTube show and a podcast. So can you talk about those well, projects? No, it's not a podcast. It's a YouTube talk show. Oh, so it's all what, one thing. So there's no difference between talking a blue streak and the. Um, oh well, yes. the The podcast was on my website. Okay, but I think the last time I did an interview was in 1947. Okay, I, <laughs> I haven't I haven't uh, done that because I've you know there's just so much I can do. Right, right, right. And, so now you're doing let Let me say this about that, and it's right. on Set of Sales Network on YouTube. So tell us about that. Yeah, I, you know I'm retired. I, I sold my house in L.A. I, I bought this house. I'm writing about that in my act, too. I bought a big house in the desert. I knew it was big when I, because when I was standing at the baggage claim area, they told me that the gift shop was down the street. You know, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a big house. It's a big house. Uh, yeah, it's a big house. Uh, and I was retired and happily, happily retired. You know, and I got a phone call out of the blue. Hi, Steve, we'd like to give you a talk show on the YouTube network. And I went, really? And they said, yeah. I said, well, you know, I I moved out of L.A. Don't worry, we can do it from your house. I said, hey, listen, perfect. I don't have to leave the house. You know, when between Amazon and the Bank of America's direct deposit, Mm -hmm. I haven't haven't left the house in 35 years. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I could get a heart and lung machine from Amazon. That's all I need. <laughs> so, so, so I do this talk show, and to my utter amazement, it's become hugely popular. Our, our last show got 8,000 views, over 8,000 views. And I, and th- I said, who, who are these people? And, and it's just been great. Now, Fritz is going to do it on the 18th. I can't wait. I hear he's good. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I can't do it. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> no so it's great. So That's you, my negative childhood coming in. No. No, it's it's really fun. I watched a few, and it's really fun. So how do you decide who to talk to? It seems like you've been picking people that you are simpatico with and that you have wonderful stories just that uh, experiences to share. No, I'm only interviewing my friends. Okay. That's that's. All you know, and I have <laughs> literally a couple of hundred people I can call on. And uh, if anybody that I don't know ever comes on, then I may go into cardiac arrest. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So it's that familiarity that makes it feel more like a conversation than, than a show. I, like Mark Summers was on this uh, last week. And uh, Mark and I had not been friends because he came to the comedy store after me. He's had a and- great career. Oh my God, we should all have a great career. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, when my play was in Delaware, he was in Pennsylvania and he called me and said, I'd like to come down and see the rehearsal. I said, sure. And uh, that artwork was done by uh, uh, one of the prostate, you know, one of my books is called Take My Prostate, Please. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that uh, was done by one of the prostate group uh, websites, which I thought was wonderful. And I, I said, look, if I look that good, I'd be happy. <laughs> so you I do. That. You look that good. I'm going to throw some names at you. I want you to react to them, okay, briefly. All right. Mitzi Shore. Love her. She gave me my career. Uh, you know, Mitzi was living in a little house. She had the big house in, on, on Doheny, and then they sold that. She was incapacitated, and I went to visit her. And I said to her, everything I have, I owe to you, and I will not let them forget. You're not the only person that said that. Robin Williams. Uh, Robin was great. You know, he lived with, um, he lived with Elaine Boozler, and I pulled her aside one day, and I said, Elaine, get him some deodorant. <laughs> he, was, he was, you know, nature man, mm -hmm. but it was pretty strong. And, you know, he was, he was Robin was unique. Mitzi said to me, I, I remember the day like it was yesterday. I was in La Jolla, and I saw his picture on the wall, and I said, who is that? And Mitzi said, oh, that's our next star. <laughs> Um, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to be the next star. Right. Richard Pryor. Uh, Richard, you know, I, I I wasn't close with Richard. We were friendly. We said hello to each other because I was always, you know, too shy to become to become close to him. But between Richard and Jimmy, see, Jimmy started it, and then he brought Richard in, hmm. and Richard really opened up. You know, because Richard had the name already. So Richard really opened up the world to comedy. From Paul Mooney. Uh, totally insane. Mm -hmm. Totally insane. Loved him. Loved him. Uh, made me so uncomfortable because mm -hmm. he, was, he was insane. And, and yet he always treated me beautifully. Always, you know, liked me and, and was, but I couldn't. I couldn't get close to him. He was no. scary to me. No. He was he was mean. No, he was a very scary guy. He was mean on stage and off stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think but, he wanted to be imposing. I think it made yeah. him feel powerful. Yeah. But um, very few people knew that, you know, he he I think he wrote the majority of Live on the Sunset Strip Richards. Yeah, people Red I, Suit yeah. Special. Comedy people, yeah. I think, do yeah, not give him right. credit for that. Yeah. Hey, we promised, uh, Stephen, you may have zero interest, so you know, maybe listen to music while this is happening, but we <laughs> promised a tour of the lunchboxes that we've just installed on the front of our table. So, Look at the time. I guess, <laughs> <laughs> I guess starting at the upper left, I, that's a Happy Days lunchbox, and then we have a BG. When did you start collecting these? How long well, I, my friend Mark Davis gave me, and he's Richard Cheese, you know, lounge against the machine. He he gave me the Bee Gees lunchbox, and he found it for like $1.99. He knew that I loved the Bee Gees. And then once you have a couple of things, people think that you collect and they give them to you. So then I, I started. with Henry Winkler. What's that? I went to college with them. Oh, that's right. He went oh to Emerson. Oh, my God. He went oh to Emerson, good. too. I Were you in place that. together? No, no. He was a year ahead of me. A year ahead. Okay. So let me see. So we've got, yeah, Happy Days, the Bee Gees, and then Flipper. And that I loved wow, Flipper. Wow, that's got to be so oh, I wanted a dolphin, and my parents... We're very strict. No dolphin. And then Bobby yeah. Sherman. We have Bobby Sherman. And the this one I love. It's Chuck Connors on Cowboy in Africa, which ran for one year, but somehow they had the lunchbox deal <laughs> sealed. But I love Chuck Connors from uh, Rifleman. Rifleman. Yeah. You know, he just walked down the street shooting. I had that gun with a big round cocking mechanism. Yeah, right. 
And then we have, is that, what's next to it? Is it? E.T.? Fa family Affair. Oh, that's right, Steve. E.T., family, family Affair. Affair. Wow. Mrs. Beasley doll with Buffy. And then we have the Mouseketeers and Walton's Little House on the Prairie, E.T., and can, the Brady Bunch. Think, yeah. Can I think one thing about the Waltons? Oh, yeah, please. I, I absolutely could not relate to that family. You know, my the people, the families that I related to were the Munsters and the Adams. <laughs> right. I read that in your book. <laughs> I love those people. The Waltons, uh, Father Knows Best, uh, Donna Reed. I go, what the hell? Where's the fighting? Where's the, yeah. where's the blood? You mean what, you, didn't have, you didn't have a sister <laughs> saying goodnight to you from the house next door? Good night, Bobby. Or Good night, Steve boy. So did it, is that it? Did I cover everything? Let me see the wide yeah, shot one really more time. Good. And you, know, you got to e run that on eBay just to get a, I, I think you could. We can, I have more lunchboxes in my office. We can swap them in and out every week. And, you know, eagle-eyed viewers can hey, point Steve, out the Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Honestly. Hey, my pleasure. It was I, a I joy. It. You know, you could also bring lunch to the office. <laughs> I could. Good, I could. Good point. When you come, Steve, I'll have lunch. So here come the closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Steve Bluestein. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. What else, Fritz? Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us a great deal to be a little more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You'll find all kinds of binge-worthy stuff, including our most recent interview with the great Steve Bluestein, Gary Puckett, The Cow Sills, Keith Morrison, Henry Winkler, you name it, we have them all. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we will be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe. Thanks for listening.